Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, what are we to think of the Shroud of Turin? Is it genuine? We welcome our guest, Dr. Gary Habermas, to help us think theologically about the Shroud. He is philosopher of religion at Liberty University and a specialist in resurrection of Jesus research. Uh, welcome, Dr. Habermas. I'm glad to be with you guys. You've got a good group, and I've known a lot of the guys there for a long time. So it's certainly good to see you again and talk face-to-face. Wonderful. Uh, Ken, tell us what we can look forward to today. Well, we're going we're gonna to pick uh, Gary's brain a little bit about the Shroud of Turin. It, it's, uh, it's controversial. Uh, but we want to kind of explore some of the science about it, but maybe even more talk a little bit about whether it fits with uh, the biblical views about the resurrection. Wonderful. Okay, well, let me let me begin by reading a little something. This is from the Shroud of Turin website, shroud.com. It says, the Shroud of Turin is a centuries-old linen cloth that bears the image of a crucified man, a man that millions believe to be Jesus of Nazareth. It is, re- is it really the cloth that wrapped his crucified body, or is it simply a medieval forgery, a hoax perpetrated by some clever artist? Modern science has completed hundreds of thousands of hours of detailed study and intense research on the Shroud. Uh, it is, in fact, the single most studied artifact in human history, and we know more about it today than we ever have before. And yet the controversy still rages. Gary, um, I, I wonder if uh, I wonder if you could give us a little background about the shroud, a little bit, just a little bit about the history of how it came to be, how large is it, etc. Well, the shroud is a little over 14 feet, about 14 feet, three inches long, a little over three and a half feet wide. Now, somebody might say, that's way too long to wrap somebody in. I mean, why is it that big? Uh, you know, it's hard for me to do this, on, but maybe it'll be real helpful. The, the body in the shroud, if it's this pen, the body in the shroud is wrapped this way. So that if you open it up, it's like that, and the body's still there, but it's folded up here on the head end, and so it goes around the head. Now, either purposely or in the burying procedure, there's a loop up here, so you don't see the top of the head, but the front of the face is on one end, the back of the head is on is on the reverse, and the feet, the top and bottom of the feet, are at the far end. So at the the two open ends, if you stretch it out, you got the top of the feet on the far right, you got the bottom of the feet, or vice versa, on the far left. And uh, there's a man, an image of a man who was uh, very apparently crucified. Uh, his hands are crossed in front of them, uh, front of him. Uh, his features, the whipping wounds, are. I think very few people would would complain that it's not similar to the New Testament. It's very close to what the New Testament says. The whipping is very serious. It's like the Passion of the Christ uh, movie by uh, Gibson. 
And uh, this man has been beaten over, you could say, every inch of his body except for the face, the forearms, and the feet. There's mm. wounds all over, plus some different kinds of wounds throughout the scalp. And mm. it's not a, a wreathlet going around this. It's more like a skull cap. It goes all the way over the head, and uh, there's free bleeding wounds all over it. Now, here's the interesting thing. The blood goes all the way through. You can flip the cloth over, and just like you take linens off a of bed, and if somebody's bleeding, it obviously goes through the linen because the cloth, that's what the cloth is. And But the image on it does not go through to the back. And so if you pull out one of the threads, now these threads are very small, and there can be up to 200 or slightly more fibrils in each thread. So we're talking very small. And the image does not go more than one or maybe two fibrils deep. So the image is on the top. And that that eliminates an awful lot of faking mechanisms to start with. Because uh, the blood is a contact image, the, Im the image is not. Talk with us a little bit, Gary, about whether this uh, shroud, does it correspond well to what we know about Jewish burial? And does it, co you've, you've suggested a little bit already that it seems to fit with what we know about the crucifixion of Jesus. But yeah. tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Now, when you talk to people in the old days, one of the most one of the commonest questions I would get is, I thought they wrapped it around his body like a mummy, mm. not laying over the top and bottom. Okay. A, a couple of major things. Jews didn't bury like Egyptians. So just because Egyptians buried that way is not an evidence that Jews buried wow. that way. So the jury's kind of out on that one. But secondly, it has to be remembered that the burial of Jesus was very hasty. Let's just say for the argument, <clears throat> they were prepared to wrap it around the body. But sundown was in a matter of minutes. They had to get him in the tomb. They just simply put him under the cloth to make everything proper, help put it in the cave, put it in one of those niches in the side of the wall. Scripture says that nobody had ever been buried there before, and they slide the body in. And, of course, the women are coming back Sunday morning. One of the things they're doing is bringing spices. One of the purposes of spices is to cleanse. So it seems like the burial has to be completed. So we don't have a completed burial here, or the women wouldn't be coming to the tomb on Sunday morning. So for all those reasons, plus I could add a third reason. Uh, there have been a couple cases in archaeology where bodies have been discovered in Jewish cities or cemeteries buried like the shroud, elbows out on the side and a cloth over the top and underneath. So for all those reasons, we don't say the shroud has to be anything. We're just saying you have to be open to this kind because other examples have been found like it from that period and from Jewish sources. Yeah, I had a question related to that. Have there been other shrouds that have been found? Yeah, hundreds. Okay. Uh, now, when I say the Jews didn't bury like Egyptians, um, that doesn't mean Egyptian shrouds wouldn't be helpful. Um, there are mummy cloths that are 
that's you know one a big objection is how could Lennon have held together for that long? That was my other question. Yeah. Yeah. One of the responses is how come nobody asked that question about the mummy wrappings, which are far older? <laughs> uh, they don't seem to be bothered by that. Um, so uh, we have hundreds of burial shrouds from ancient times. Many of them are recent. Uh, many of them are ancient. For example, in some museums in Europe, one museum I read about years ago, they uh, they had dozens and dozens of burial shrouds. And here here's the the problem: when these shrouds are opened, there's blood on a lot of them, old blood stains. There are no image stains. If there are image stains, it's decomposition stains, but not an image of a body. I don't think anybody has found yet a body image from face to feet and then back of the head to the back to the bottoms of the feet. So right away, the question of the image is in a unique category because we have hundreds of shrouds, but nothing to compare the, the shroud of Turin to. So right away, people think like this. Christians often think, well, first of all, it's Catholic. Well, okay, that's beside the point. That doesn't say anything about the science. But secondly, they don't understand the shroud was never bequeathed to the Catholic Church until the 1980s. It was owned privately um, by, by a, a family, a king and family. And you say, well, it was in Turin all these years. Well, yeah, he let them keep it there and show it, but it wasn't theirs. So it's not a Catholic relic per se. Um, there's nothing like it. They they most people who compare it to the Bible think it's very close to the New Testament, at least within a range of what we can imagine of what some of those things were. So the thing they've got to hit on is, all right, this looks to me like a fake. In fact, it's so close to Jesus and what I expect that they probably caught some slave or some poor guy in a battle, crusades, whatever, uh, that's what it first pops up for sure. Uh, and they might have crucified this guy and done everything you do on crucifixion according to their knowledge of the New Testament. And then they put the cloth around the guy and bingo, you got this uh, this this uh, image because there's no paint. This is a very important scientific point. The team, the 1978 team of 35 to 40, the numbers changed. American scientists from the Jet Propulsion Lab, um, uh, all, uh, some of our best labs, mostly physicists and chemists, they they agree on this. There's no paint, dye, powder, or foreign substance such as a powder application. There is no foreign substance added to the shroud to make this image, except for the, the, the people in shroud research who may be, I'm not trying to be derogatory, but they may be down with the Jesus never lived crowd. I don't know. But except for the ones that are really just trying to say anything, um, it's pretty much agreed that the guy was crucified. This poor guy was crucified, and he had all the things done to him or done to Jesus. So obviously it was a fake, but nobody can tell how they faked it. There's no, they've tried, well, let's put it this way. You heard it at the beginning, Ken, when you read the sample. Um, more man hours have gone into studying the shroud than any other archaeological artifact in history, either religious or secular. Wow, that's something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, I have a, a question, Dr. Habermas. Um, for those who are skeptical, and we'll call it a fake or forgery, I read uh, that part of the complaint is that the blood flow patterns are not correct. Um, what do we know about, say, what happened between the death of Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea asking Pilate for the body? And I think it was Nicodemus who had 75 pounds of spices. Uh, did something else happen to the body that we're not automatically thinking of as Christians? Yeah, I think we can know that whatever happened, happened really fast because you figure they had about three hours to do whatever they had to do. And that means taking them down. One crucifixion victim whose uh, several have been found, but a crucifixion victim, a Jewish uh, fellow who, when they tried to get him down, the nail hit a a uh, knot in the wood and it took them forever. The, 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 the nail turned and they had to pry that thing out. So getting Jesus down wouldn't therefore be easy. Secondly, you've got to get him to wherever the tomb is. Then you've got to do what Jews do to bodies. As far as the blood flow, I think that's kind of a really kind of strange question. Um, he's up on the cross. He's moving up and down on the cross. As much as he can twist his body, if you can picture a body that's alive, moving, squirming, twisting to get this or that pain stopped, then he dies. When they die, it is not true, by the way, that dead bodies don't bleed. Uh, several of the shroud researchers are pathologists. And uh, they tell you, one, one of them said, kind of almost humorously, if you think dead bodies don't bleed, come spend a day with me in the morgue. <laughs> and, and so the, the, the blood will often ooze. Uh, and of course, a lot of the blood is when Jesus was alive. So it doesn't make a difference if the shroud is his or not. He bled when he was alive and, and he bled when he was dead. And when they took him down, they're turning the body horizontally. They're turning the body so they wrapped it. Now, there's a debate about whether the body was washed or not. But either way, if it was, you're turning the body this way and then that way. Imagine putting the, the sheet around the body and trying to fit it. If you've ever seen those little tiny cubicles into which they, they slid the bodies, there's virtually no room to put them in there. So if you can think of getting that off the ground several feet up, it, and it would take more than the, the women. Of course, they were mostly... One gospel says they watch from a little further away, but um, there's a couple of men there at least, and they're sliding this in. That body's twisting every which way. So to, I will tell you this, there is post-mortem blood flow on the shroud. In hmm. fact, there's about a half dozen reasons to know that this guy isn't in a coma. He is, he's dead. There's post-mortem blood flow. There's a separation of blood and serum especially the chief pathologist, Bob Buckland, before he passed away, he said that the um, that there was a, a watery serum coming out with the blood. It was especially available, uh, I mean, especially visible on the back. See, the, the, the man is stabbed in the upper right-hand chest, and the blood comes out, but then it flows around the back of the chest, and then across horizontally across the waist. And Bob used to say, it's that horizontal blood flow in the back where you could see this serum. Now, it's probably post-mortem blood. It's probably coming out after the it's the, you know, uh, on the back of the cloth. So uh, there's a lot of obstacles to overcome here. But when they propose the normal kinds of paint dye powder, foreign substance, 
Uh, they killed a poor man. Well, they killed a poor man to put him in the cloth. I understand that's a thesis, but that makes the shroud authentic, not inauthentic. Mm. In fact, I often say to people, let's just say the shroud is not Jesus's. Let's just say that for the argument. If the shroud is authentic, it still tells us an awful lot about crucifixion, probably more than we know from anything else about crucifixion. So if it's a real man who was crucified, died, and buried, we learn things from the shroud you can't learn anywhere else on the burial of Jesus, even if it's a slave, even if it's somebody that came up, brought back with the crusaders, uh, you know, hard to tell. So the things that line up, then you have to get into the essentials and say, where in the world did this image come from? Because that is the hardest thing to explain. By the way, the blood has been typed. The blood has been checked. It is human blood. And, um, you know, I was lecturing one time and and one person said, you know, the blood type, you guys can, you scientific folks can help me here. Which blood, which type of blood is universal donor? Anybody remember? Mm-hmm. Well, whatever oh. universal. Whatever universal donor is, the the questioner said, wouldn't that be neat if Jesus' blood was universal donor? Mm. (laughs) That's a real interesting point. It isn't, but I think it's AB negative. I may be wrong, but it's something like that. AB positive, I think. AB positive. Thank you, Ken. AB positive. I don't get get asked that question very often. Hey, they've even, they have even gotten the chemical data off of the uh, blood so that you could say, oh no, what if they grew this sample and they ended up making a, an exact duplicate of Jesus Christ or something? Well, that would still be a, a lot of issues, but here's the point. I heard a, one of the chief medical doctors on the team lecture on this, and the guy said, hey, you folks have to understand how this thing works medically. The shroud has been handled by tens of thousands of people. It's been put on displays before it was ever in a case. People handle it. And they said blood is one of the easiest things to mess up with the characteristics of whomever whomever taught it. Did and this and this pathologist said, you mess up, you mess up blood every time you touch anything affected by it. He said, there's no possible way that the data we get from the blood is the data from the man in the shroud. It's the data from everybody who touched the cloth, whoever mm-hmm. the man is. So that doesn't help either. Because you got some, you got some novels. I've got one up here on my shelf. You've you've got novels that are written on like making another Jesus. And what would it be like if we had we could get his blood and turn him into something? Ken, I don't know what you think, Ken, but I think that would be you. You would also have an issue with the difference between a human being and the Son of God. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything in blood that types that types over to say he, he's he's uh, this is the Son of God. Probably not. <laughs> hey, I've got a question. Uh, what you know? One of the issues, of course, is how early. Uh, do we have evidence of this shroud being in existence historically? What What is the evidence? Can you explain a little bit more about the earliest evidence of the presence of this shroud? Sure. I made the reference to the, the crusaders coming back and maybe bringing a slave or something. And uh, the 
clearest string of citations are from the middle of the Middle Ages, just before the Renaissance. Um, and the carbon dating, which you guys I'm sure will bring up, uh, the 1988 carbon dating argued that the shroud was about about the 14th century. Okay, yeah. a, a couple a couple arguments. I could mention two, and if you want to go into detail, uh, sure. to to unpack it. But two arguments. One is a is a art history argument. Down through the centuries, a lot of artists have painted pictures of Jesus. So much so that when you see the picture I'm talking about, the one that's copied off the shroud face, even children say, that's Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean anything about whether there's Jesus. It means nothing, but it means that people recognize that as a picture of Jesus. So what's going on? There were, we, we don't know that from the picture we have Jesus. I mean, who does Jesus look, what does Jesus look like? But here's the key. The painters thought they were painting the face of Jesus. They thought they were painting Jesus' face. True or false, there's a string of these photos, uh, I mean, paintings and artwork, like um, a wax overlay. And some of our earliest pictures of Jesus, or whatever you mean by picture, not photos, um, some of our earliest pictures go back to the sixth century. They go back to the 500s. Now, if you have this prototype of this picture of Jesus, and it's not just one, they're all over the world. They're in Southern Italy. They're in um, uh, the monastery there, south of Jerusalem. They've been there for 100 years. They're on Roman coins starting about the late 7th century. They're on Roman coins. There are pictures of Jesus on little gold coins that are about the size of our dime. And it's a picture of Jesus. You can see the cross behind him. And the Latin around it says something like King of Kings and Lord of Lords on the coin. Now, one of the scientists uh, from uh, Duke University Medical School developed a photo overlay uh, procedure. And he would put the, the coins or the paintings or the wax reliefs over the shroud face. And I'm told that in order for someone to be convicted for uh, let's say robbing a store that has the camera on, and the last picture we have of this guy is a picture from his yearbook and it's 25 years ago. They can put the two faces together with so many points of congruence. And I've been told that the points of congruence are about 50, the required points of congruence. The pictures between the Roman coins, the paintings, and the man on the shroud uh, are as many as 150 to 200 points of congruence. So that's an art history argument. It does. I, I want to be clear. Nobody copying this picture means the man on the shroud is Jesus or anything like that. But they thought they were painting it. Now, if that's true, how come the paintings go back to the 6th century and the coins are from about... 690 to about 720, right in that range. How can we have these things if the shroud wasn't around till the 14th century? That's one. Secondly, the 1988 carbon 14 test has been was exploded about a year ago. We've actually had the speaker here on campus. He's a French scholar, and he teamed up with two, I think, PhDs in statistics. And what they did was by 
Freedom of Information Act. It took them two years to get this information. They got these stats on what the three labs found on carbon-14, one in Switzerland, one in Oxford, and one in Arizona. It was uh, either Arizona or Arizona State uh, universities. And the, and the dates are all over the place. And what they did apparently was take the dates and average them. And the statisticians go, this is crazy. You don't take dates and average them and say it's like, like if a date is 780 and if a date is 1500, do you average it? Or do you say it's somewhere in that range, but we don't know where. And so about two years ago, but by the way, the guy that uh, initiated this became a Christian over studying this. Again, we had him here. We heard his testimony. It's really incredible. But so here's here's the the, the bad point is they don't know what the what date the shroud is. The good point is the medieval the medieval information is not verifiable at all. Okay. And lastly, there have been private shroud dating tests that were not made public because permission wasn't given. And a lot of people have authentic threads. And the shroud was dated a few other times. One of the most impressive tests was done on the University of California dating facility. And the date of the shroud, I was told by two of the team members, one of them said it was dated to about 70 AD, plus or minus. Hmm. But the other one actually said uh, earlier than 70 AD. And one of the tests, one of the more, one of the broader ones, it said the shroud is somewhere within a 500 year period from about 250 before Christ to 250 after Christ. Now that's not very, that's not very helpful, but it does tell you that the 1400 date seems to be all wet. Okay. Couple, couple questions, Gary. I've heard, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, that uh, there were signs of pollen that can be traced to the Middle East. Yes. And, and people have said that there are signs of radiation. Is that correct? Yeah, both of these are two of the more intriguing. You could add to the coins, the coins over the eyes. Okay. Yeah. In photographs, in the 1932 photographs called the Enrié photos, you can see the images on the coins. And researchers have used image enhancement material to lift the data, even though it's under a sheet. And one of them reportedly has a name going around the edge, and uh, which is Tiberius Caesar. Now, Tiberius Caesar is the Caesar in on the throne there when Jesus dies. He he lives till about depending on when you date the crucifixion. He uh, died about seven years after Jesus. So, and the name is misspelled. Now, Josh McDowell is, is a very good friend of mine, but years ago, he published a, an essay in a book, and he said, the shroud does not look good. It doesn't pass the rules. Why would you misspell your emperor's name? It is misspelled. The name is misspelled. Well, a couple people have said, you know, I just don't think Jews cared if they misspelled this guy's name or not. It's just not. <laughs> but but here's here's the cuter thing. Seven of these leptons, they're leptons of Pontius Pilate. Seven of them have shown up since this time that have that misspelling. Mm. 
Wow. So that's a, they even, I got an article where this was written up in a numismatic newspaper it has nothing to do with archaeology or New Testament. Now, here's the bad news. There's a lot of disagreement about the pollens, a lot of disagreement about the coins among the scientists. Some of them think it's legit. Some of them think not about both the pollen and about the coins. The coins would be more suggestive if they're leptons of Pontius Pilate. The pollen doesn't tell you when, but it tells you where. And the a number of the pollens on the shroud are, are what they call prehistoric pollens, meaning they're from plants that no longer live. And when they did exist, they existed somewhere between the Dead Sea and Jerusalem, believe it or not. And they're no longer in existence. But those those pollens can be identified. Now, the guy who had the pollens, a, a, a Swiss criminologist, gave the pollens to the same uh, uh, scientist I told you earlier from Duke Medical School. And, and uh, they're still around. I've seen the pollens, but I have no way to judge what they are. I'll tell you guys one more thing. On the bottom of the man's feet, there's dirt. He's walked with bare feet. It, this is incredible, but an article was actually published in a peer-reviewed secular chemical journal. And the conclusion was the dirt on the man's feet is a species of limestone. But that limestone is almost totally found in the Jerusalem area. Hmm. So you've got limestone, you've got coins, and you've got pollen, which may or may not be. The, the big one, Ken, is the possibility that the image is radiation. Hmm. And the body's dead. The, the body's in a state, I tell people, it's kind of hard to fake. The body's in a state of rigor mortis. W when you look at it, the left knee has popped up like this, where the right, where the right leg is straight. Um, the man's head is frozen in a forward position like this. His head's leaning forward. He's frozen. So some rigor mortis. Now, rigor mortis disappears, but, but there's still some rigor mortis left in the body, um, and he's dead. But something looks like it's affected, it comes from the body, and it looks like radiation. Now, they have done dozens of tests on this, dozens, mostly in Italian uh, scientific, mostly in uh, laser facilities, physics faculties in Italy, but other, other places too. And for years, Ken Stevenson and I, my co-author, Ken Stevenson and I would we we would be asked, well, if that's light, if that's radiation, which way is it coming in? Is it coming from the outside in or from the inside out? And for years we said, we really don't know. I mean, it's hard to know. It's on one side of the cloth, but what side of the cloth was toward you know the body and so on? Well, I was given this lecture one time and a medical doctor. In fact, this has happened twice, where a doctor was sitting right up front slides and and he said stop 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 he said go back to that slide and i went back and i've got some close-ups of the shroud face they're real common but if you look you can see little tiny marks below the lips and above mostly below and they're not from the beating in fact some scientists think that they have isolated uh, about about a dozen and a half teeth mm. now if you and the doctor said look uh, one of them was a dental surgeon. He said, if you can see teeth 
if that's teeth here, the light is coming from the inside because it has to drag the tooth image out to the surface. It doesn't come down this way mm. and isolate the teeth because why are other hard parts of the body not represented on the cloth? Uh, by the way, the hands, they used to say the man of the shroud had Marfan syndrome, like like um, Abraham Lincoln, and abnormally long fingers. And they were looking, if you look at a shroud photo, you can see the fingers look very long. Well, guess what? They now think that, that what you're seeing is radiation coming through the hands. And if you look at the hands, you got the independent figure, finger bones all the way down. So this fellow from Duke Medical School, he took an image overlay and he put a human skull. He was a medical doctor. Uh, he I took a human skull and put it next to the shroud face and cut the figure in half. And what he did was he went halfway around the shroud face and went halfway around the human skull and put the two halves together. He cut the photos and put them together. And where the teeth start moving on the on the shroud, they they go right around. The, they look normal. The skull looks like it follows. And the hands, he photographed the hands so that one's next to the other one. And where you see these bones up in the hand, you can trace them on the x-ray right up in the hand. Now, there are other popular theories right now. There's a natural theory that all the ammonia and chemicals on the human body, uh, when it sat for hundreds of years in a warm cave or a warm this or a warm that, the image basically came out and was kind of baked into it as a natural thing. Um, that doesn't explain hardly anything of the any of the of the uh, X-ray features, but those who take the X-ray view, it's not the only view, but those who take the X-ray view think that there were two kinds of X-rays. Now, here's the key. If it is, the X-ray has to be coming out of the body at the exact moment when Jesus is dead or you have a swoon theory, but he's still dead. So it has to come out when he's still dead as dead can be, but it also it also covers it when his body is coming to life. That's the explanation. He's dead. I hate to use this kind of language, but he's dead and he's waking up. He's dead and he's rejuvenating. So one of the first books that came out of the Shroud uh, said, we may be looking at a photograph of the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's what the guy said. Now, again, that a lot of people think that they go for this this um, natural image more than the radiation. And a lot of Christians go for the natural image and, re, and don't like radiation as much. But those who there are many, many tests that confirm the radiation. And if that's what they're trying to do a major one right now, they've been trying to do it for years. You can major, you can measure the neutron flux in the cloth. And if the neutron flux has increased, see, uh, a, a radioactive act would make an object much younger than it appears to be. So it could be 14. Nobody thinks right now. I, I don't think it's thought often that it's 14th century, but if it was our 15th century, if it was, now you got to know if there's a neutron flux in the cloth. And they're doing research on that right now. So a lot of stuff here. Gary, this is a um, a historical and maybe even a textual 
criticism or concern. Uh, Protestant reformer John Calvin wrote a book entitled A Treatise on Relics, and he wrote this. He says, how is it possible that those sacred historians who carefully related all the miracles that took place um, at Christ's death should have omitted to mention one so remarkable as the likeness of the body of our Lord remaining in its wrapped sheet. This fact undoubtedly deserved to be recorded. What um, what are your thoughts there? Uh, what 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 do you, do you think Calvin has a point or what would you say? I, 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 several things come to my mind. First of all, do you have any idea how old the source was he was using? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, if it was 500 years earlier or 300 years earlier, that'd be significant. Okay, here's a bunch of mixed thoughts. Um, how does he know he has the right shroud? How does he know that the guy, who, not him personally, but the guy who's describing it? Because there were a lot of fake shrouds being passed around the Middle Ages. I have, on my, on my shroud slide presentation that I do, um, I have photographs of some of the fakes. And they're ridiculous. The bodies are grotesque. The bodies grotesque. It looks funny. Here's an interesting thing, Ken. They always put the nails in the palms and the fakes. Mm -hmm. Nobody today thinks the nails in the palm. They think it's at the base of the wrist right here, but they always move it up here. That's another thing. If you're making the shroud to make money off of it, get the nail holes back in the palm. Nobody's going to ever, it's going to be rejected because of the base of the palm. Um, but First of all, there's a lot of shrouds around. How do you know he's got the right one? Uh, number two, let's just say he has read reports and it says that there's no image on it. Well, then we have to, like I said, we can't be positive of the of the shroud. I say 80 to 90 probably. Um, what if it's that theory that it took time for the image to come out uh, over time? So, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. But it may favor the other theory. But I don't know what Calvin was looking at. So, yeah. or talking about there are. Here's the third one. There are references to the shroud. There's there's references to face images of Jesus. And John Jackson, who may be the now he's one of the top. He's a theoretical physicist, and he's argued that the shroud was wrapped up, and when you wrapped it a certain way and put it away in a reliquary. Uh, only the face would be available. They wouldn't. They wouldn't fold the face under. The top thing would be the face. And he. There are even. I've seen the photographs. There are photographs where there are holes, where the corners would go, like they're hanging the shroud up. So it would come unwrapped. But if you're only looking at the face, there are references there before John John Calvin that go back a long time. So which one are you looking at? Which one do you think is more authoritative? Th those are. First of all, this would not change the conclusion one bit about whether it is an authentic archaeological artifact. Mm. If it is, it's as valuable as finding a stone from Jericho or, you know, something else from some other find. The bones of the crucifixion victim, Johannan, who uh, Johannan, who was found in 1968 um, outside Jerusalem in a cemetery uh, with a nail still through his his. Uh, ankles, si sorry, heels, sideways. Um, and there are other examples like that now with the nails uh, being. So 
there are other examples there. And, it, and if it's an ar actual archaeological artifact, we learn a lot about crucifixion, even if it's not Jesus. Yeah. Uh, I, have an, I have another question. Uh, people will want to know, as I do, what you think personally about the Shroud. And also people listening to this podcast will know that you have a what's called minimal facts approach to the resurrection. What does this do to the resurrection, if anything? And where should Christians put their confidence? Okay, a few arguments there. Uh, I joke around, but some people don't take me as much of a joke, a joker. They get upset when I say this. I, st I do an interview on the Shroud and I say, I don't know. I, I, it's probably 80% likely. Then I get these emails, people angry at me for saying it's only 80% likely. And I'll say, look, you guys got to understand something. You have to understand the difference between induction and deduction. And in induction, you can never get 100% of anything. And I could say everything I know about the Shroud looks really good but they could come up with something tomorrow and make an image just like it. Now, they've made a lot of images on cloth and the scientists have, have put it through the same test they put the shroud through and they all failed. They haven't found anything that's close. But what happens if it comes up tomorrow? Then I've got to I've got to be open to changing my view. And then if it's a really good argument, I might have to change my view. So I'll say, but you know, don't worry. I'm 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 90 when the sun is shining, 90% when the sun is shining, and I'm ready to go fishing or something. You know, I feel a little bit better today. But that's how I am. We're human beings and we evaluate arguments that way. So I'd say 80 to 90%. Now, as over against my minimal facts argument, I'll define that in a sentence or two. I take a half dozen facts, I add the empty tomb, which I don't think is a minimal fact, but I think it's close enough to put it in there. So I, I have what I call six plus one. When Mike Lacona and I published a book years ago, we called it four plus one. Uh, it was a chapter title. Uh, but I think there's six major facts plus the empty tomb, which means seven. But empty tomb is not a minimal fact the way I do it. And to be a minimal fact, you have to have multiple evidences in favor of every fact you use. And here's the one the, the empty tomb fails on. The evidence is good. There are over 20 arguments for the empty tomb. Here's the key. Doing the arguments the way critics do the arguments. I only use the critics' methods. So there are over 20 arguments for the empty tomb using critical methodology, not saying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four different sources. Uh, critics would say there's two there, um, for the most part, unless you find well, that's a long question. Okay. Uh, but you don't count the four Gospels and get four sources. You have to do it the way they do it. And doing it the way they do it, we get over 20 evidences for the empty tomb. I just finished that part, my first book on this foursome, four volumes on, on the minimal facts, uh, is 1,100 pages. And it's the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. The evidence from the, for the minimal facts and a couple hundred pages on the Gospels and are the Gospels reliable. But on the minimal facts alone, I have 600 pages of evidence. Every one of these facts, throw the empty tomb in there, that's six plus one, they average about 15 to 25 major and minor arguments for their facticity. That's why the empty tomb does not make the uh, very high, uh, super high grade of skeptics. You're, uh, by the way, Ken, I, I'm published saying 75% of the scholars I've counted uh, hundreds believe in the empty tomb. I just did a renumbering on this first volume of 200, 250-ish 
critical scholars. Everybody has to have a terminal degree in a relevant area to New Testament studies. So New Testament, history, classics, archaeology, philosophy, something close where you have the tools to work with. And the number went up to 80.1%. So we are gaining on the empty tomb. Wow. But it's not the kind of agreement that we get on crucifixion or the disciples thought they saw the risen Jesus. It's not there. Uh, so if you do it that way, that's the way I do the argument. I don't think if the shroud is the burial garment of Jesus, and if the second question, if the image is radiation, if, if we get a test for that and it's radiation, and those are teeth, and those are the hands, um, we're we're very close to closing the loop on resurrection. I'll tell you folks this. I've got two books behind me, one by Tim uh, by Tim McGrew, and one by by um uh what do I think about Tim Richard? Uh, who's the British philosopher? Oh, Richard Swinburne. This is horrible. Swinburne. Swinburne Richard yeah. Swinburne and Tim McGrew. They're experts on the application of 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 um, Bayes' theorem and other argumentative theories to the data. <laughs> Swinburne starts out with God being 50-50. He's got a whole book, a great book on God's existence, but he doesn't want to offend anybody, and he doesn't want them to say, oh, well, you've got God at 90, so of course you're going to believe in the resurrection. He doesn't want that objection, so he starts out with God, argument, arguments for God being 50-50. And he still comes up with 97.9 for the resurrection, 97.9. Tim McGrew is another philosopher and a specialist. He's the head of the department at Western Michigan University. Tim, I was talking to him lately, and I said, uh, what do you think about Richard Swinburne's 97.9? He says, strangely enough, I was just with Richard a little while ago. I told him I loved his argument except for one thing. His 97.9 was way too low. <laughs> uh, McGrew points it, puts it at 99.9. .9. And here's how he argues. He says, the way you do stats, the way you, you compare math to the historical arguments, and this is his area of expertise, he says, he says something like this. There's a sentence that's a knockout. He says, you cannot have a naturalistic theory that is so strong that there's no refutation of it. He says the data, the positive data will always outnumber the naturalistic theory. And when that happens, you get more and more sure of the thesis under construction. So he actually thinks that Richard Swinburne is too lax at 97.9. Wow. So if the shroud is up there, and those guys don't use the shroud as far as I know, but if they use the shroud, man. And, and I'll tell you, fellas, this, Ken, you probably get this all the time. Many of you might. If Jesus' resurrection is so strong as you say it is. How come more skeptics don't believe? Mm -hmm. And and if I if I said that because my my second thesis is the skeptics agree with me on the facts being historical. By the way, the first one is far more important that there are facts is more important that they agree because of it. But you get those two together and they say, why don't they believe? And this is. I don't want to tell them this, but philosophically, it's a very naive question because people think that if you prove something with data, let's take Swinburne or Tim McGrew, 
they're going to go, oh my gosh, I'm going to quit doing X, Y, Z, and I'm coming to Jesus right now, and my whole life will change. That's not the way life works. And we choose our worldviews. And when you witness a lot to people who are really huge in these areas, I mean, the Dom Crossons and Bart Ehrmans and the guys in the world who are really on the other side, I mean, they're, they, they're very nice guys and they know the data and they'll agree with you. But they'll say, yeah, you're not getting me on this one. How do you explain the data? I can't. In fact, the latest information is that naturalistic theories are plunging. And here's the rarest one. You'll almost never find a critic today who will take just one theory and stick with it. They won't stick with it. And they'll say this, oh, I can think of five that'll work. I can think of 10 that'll work. You know why? They want to bounce around to more than one when you rip it to shreds. But on the data... I mean, of course, I'm conservative and I teach at Liberty. And I believe these things, but try to refute these things. Mm. Try to refute the naturalistic theories for the rest. It's more than just a quick little five points. I have, I have 30, 40, 50, 70 pages on each of these naturalistic theories. I just finished the naturalistic theory book on the resurrection, and it's uh, about a thousand pages oh, of cool. naturalistic theories. Where, where's all this data coming from? And so it's not because the evidence is so good, they just won't. They won't believe it's because they're not interested. Mm. It's like, why don't you date this person or that person? Well, I'm interested in this person. I'm not interested in that person for whatever my reasons are. You can't question my reasons. Yeah. So, mm. well, let me let me tell our listeners that they can get your article entitled "The Shroud of Turin and Its Significance for Biblical Studies." That's available at GaryHabermas.com. Um, and Gary, tell our audience more about this four-volume set. Um, uh, when when do you think this might be published? Who's the publisher? How and how long have you been working on it? Oh my, yeah, those are loaded questions. Uh, <laughs> well, I've I've studied resurrection all my life. I was a skeptic for twenty years, and. It was 10 years straight, just in case someone says you've always said 10. Um, what I've said is 10 years straight and 10 years on and off for a total of, of, of 20. In fact, 10 after my PhD, after my PhD, I don't want them to think I'm 11 years old when this happened. After my PhD, I almost became a Buddhist. Wow. When I knew, when I knew way better, and this is in print, I've said it many times. I almost became a Buddhist. So I had studied the resurrection all my life, and people will come up to me and say, look at look at creation, which later became intelligent design. Look at this data. Look at archaeology. Look at the reliability of the New Testament. Look what we found, in, found here and there. Doesn't that make you believe in the resurrection? And being a philosopher, no, it didn't help, because... I would think archaeology, ID, uh, ID doesn't doesn't point to a specific deity or religion. So, and every one of these arguments, creation too, creation could be believed by the Buddhists. I mean, you could have a Buddhist believe our theories. Uh, I've got a, I've got an article in my file written by a physicist, and he's he's uh, Krishna. He follows Hinduism, and he the lead article in this uh, Hindu journal is how the cosmological argument proves God's existence. And he's a Buddhist. Wow. So 
those are two, they were too general for me. I wanted to know how the Jesus of the New Testament could be raised from the dead. And I read a sentence one day, the book is still on my shelf right there. I read the sentence and it said, if Jesus had been raised from the dead, then Christianity is true. And here's the reasons. And I, I said to myself, I know nothing about this resurrection topic, but my, my pastor was kind of a fideist, a great preacher, but a fideist. And <clears throat> I knew nothing about resurrection. And I said, if I could show this event happened, I think the argument follows that Jesus is who he said he was, but I know nothing about resurrection. And that launched me on a study of the resurrection that's lasted my entire life. Mm -hmm. I did my doctoral dissertation at Michigan State on the resurrection. Half my committee members did not believe in it. Um, one of them was an agnostic Jewish historian, by the way, who was the most complimentary guy of my dissertation. Okay, so I left resurrection study for a little while, about 1990. I mean, I never left it, but I, I stayed into it, but it wasn't my first love for a little while. And then about five years later, I thought, I've got to update my bibliography. I started updating it from my 1975 dissertation, and it blew up into this big, this big deal that is lasted now um, about 15 years. And over 15 years, I have looked at over 4,000 sources on the resurrection to find out what scholars believe and what I can what I can build and what they allow. And more importantly, why do they allow that? And so friends of mine said, you got to write this stuff. And I said, I don't want to. It's going to dominate my life. No, you got to do it. I don't want to. You got to do it. And one day I decided to do it, and it's dominated my life. <laughs> I started writing exactly 10 years ago. That was after I did this new bib. I started writing in 2013. I'm just short of 6,000 pages right now. They're, to they're all written. I have a research assistant who was my doctoral student when it started, but he now has a Ph.D., he also has a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so it's good to take him around with you on trips. <laughs> uh, so uh, he's helping me edit this. We Volume one has been sent in. Volume two has been sent in. We're working on volume three. It's all written, but it takes a long time to edit it. Mm. Volume one is due out in January, uh, next January. If there's no delays, paper strikes, you know, yeah. bus, bus or truck, January, hopefully it'll be up. One of, the, one, of things, one of the things that Ken uh, tells us about is that uh, in uh, these great scholars and fathers of the church in the past, at, towards the end of their life, they, uh, they began writing retractions, uh, things that they changed their mind on. <laughs> Are you writing any retractions? Nope, definitely not on the resurrection. I remember Norm Geisler telling me a uh, long time before he died, I was talking to him about creation and where he was on creation. And he was explaining it to me. And I said, oh, you changed your mind on this or that. And he turned to me, we were in an airport waiting for the same plane. And, and he turned to me and he said, Gary, I have changed my mind on almost every non-fundamental area in Christianity. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that happens. But right now, I can't think of too many things I've changed my, my mind on. Okay. Hey, Gary, this has been great. Uh, again, we want to encourage uh, our listeners to go to GaryHabermas.com. 
you can get this great little article. And uh, uh, when your resurrection series comes out, we'd love to have you back and talk to us about it. That'd be wonderful. By the way, my YouTube, under YouTube, I also have a YouTube channel with, I'm just guessing, 175 things. The majority of them are on the resurrection, or at least that's the most popular topic. They can find all the stuff, what the minimal facts are, the stuff on the shroud. Interestingly yeah. enough, the shroud items get the most hits. Mm. Yeah. That's that's intriguing. Righty. Thanks, fellas. Had a good time. Yeah. Thank you. We've been uh, visiting with Dr. Gary Habermas. Uh, that website again is GaryHabermas.com. Last name spelled H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. You'll find some great stuff there, including videos for people who like to see videos. So thank you to our guest and thanks for listening to this podcast. Send your comments to Ken via Twitter at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For the guys here, Ken Samples and Dave Brogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.